Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. John chapter 14, reading the first three verses. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This precious passage is often heard at funerals because it is so sublime and so comforting. But I suggest that the passage is applicable to our lives in every respect, not just when grief-stricken or bereaved. Jesus says to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. Now you may know that these words begin what is the final sermon that Jesus preached before he went to the cross. It is recorded for us in John chapters 14, 15, and 16. I love the sequence of events in the latter portion of John's gospel. Starting in chapter 13, you have the Last Supper and the washing of the saints' feet. John 14 through 16 is the last sermon that Jesus preached. John 17 is the last prayer that he prayed for his disciples, the high priestly intercessory prayer. John 18 is his trial. John 19 is his crucifixion. John 20 and 21 is his resurrection and post-resurrection appearances. So in the last eight chapters of John's gospel, we have a few days in the life of Jesus, right at the end of his life, a sequence of events and a concentrated look at these precious hours. And again, as I said, these words that we've taken as a text today introduce the last sermon that Jesus ever preached. Now, he has just told them in the 13th chapter on several occasions, I go away. In fact, verse 36, he says, whither I go, thou canst not follow me now. And when someone that you love informs you that they're leaving, it's a very sad occasion. And I can imagine the disciples as Jesus, who has been the center of their activity for the last three and a half years, I can imagine that for him to tell them that he was leaving must have filled their heart with sorrow. And it's interesting to me that in this final sermon, as he is headed toward the cross, he knows he's about to be crucified. It's interesting to me that Jesus is not self-focused. He's not thinking about himself, but he's thinking about them. He does not say, men, don't bother me right now. I've got a lot on my mind. I'm about to go to the cross and be crucified. Jesus, in fact, is not thinking about himself at all, but he's thinking about his disciples and his concern is to encourage them as they approach life in the aftermath of his homegoing. So the words here are very tender, are they not? Let not your heart be troubled. 
Now, I think it's significant that Jesus does not say, let not your life be troubled, for that would be an impossible commandment. There was no way that they could have obeyed that, let not your life be troubled. That is, don't let trouble come into your life. Because the fact is, trouble is inevitable in each of our lives, right? There's no escaping it. The person who expects a trouble-free and hassle-free life is living in a fantasy world. (laughs) My friends, there's not a one of us who will escape this life without having trouble. Job 5, 7 says, man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. If you've ever watched a bonfire or a fire in nature, maybe you were burning some limbs and debris in your, on your property, you notice that the sparks inevitably fly upward. He says, man is born under, the, under trouble just as sparks fly upward, just as inevitable as sparks ascend from a fire, so trouble is inevitable in our lives. Job 14.1 says, man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. That's a fact. Life is brief. Man that is born of a woman is a few days. You say it doesn't seem brief. Well, if you're eight or nine years of age, it may not seem like it's very brief. But I'll tell you, you blink and turn around twice and go to sleep one night and you wake up and it has passed you by and you say, my, where have the years gone? Life is brief. And those few days, he says, are characterized by trouble. Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. In fact, Jesus says in this very sermon, the last verse, John 16, in the world you shall have tribulation. That's a fact, my beloved. And I think it's key to healthy-mindedness to remember that this life is a veil of tears. None of us will escape this world without a few scars and heartaches and challenges. In fact, a little child doesn't have to live very long before he realizes that this world is not always a friendly place. Wait until he starts walking or toddling or she begins to pull up to the dresser and take her first few steps. That first little tumble skinned knee or bump on the head reminds you, my friends, that this world is not always a friendly place. Trouble is inevitable. So Jesus does not say, let not your life be troubled. We can't keep trouble from touching our lives, but we can keep it from getting inside of our hearts. And Jesus says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, since trouble is inevitable in life, my friends, again, we won't ever escape it. But I'll tell you, When the trouble out there gets on the inside of you, then you're in trouble. And that's what can easily happen to the disciples of Jesus Christ. He's concerned that as he is going away, that his disciples would allow the troubles of life to get inside their hearts. And so he says these tender words, let not your heart be troubled. You might say, Brother Mike, that seems like an impossible dream, an unrealistic expectation. For who is capable of living in a world of trouble without being affected by it? Is it even possible, you ask today, to live in a world of trouble and to keep your heart at peace? Well, history records a number of stories of people who have done just that. You may be familiar with Fanny Crosby, the blind hymn writer. 
We sing a number of her songs, don't we? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? She was a prolific author. But you know, when she was just an infant, her parents applied a plaster to her eyes. She had some kind of an eye infection, and the home remedy that they tried backfired on them, and she turned blind. Instead of helping her, it scarred her eyes so that she was unable to see. And from earliest childhood, she was blind her entire life. Do you know Fanny Crosby, when she was eight years old, wrote this poem? Oh, what a happy child am I. Now that's surprising to me. She's a blind little girl. Blind. I can't imagine. But she says, oh, what a happy child am I. Although I cannot see, I am resigned that in this world contented I would be. Those are triumphant words, aren't they? What a special mindset this young lady had. She goes on to say, how many things that I enjoy that other children don't? To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. Now, I dare say, my beloved, that here's someone whose life had trouble, but her heart was free and at liberty, wouldn't you say? And she ended up writing 8,000 Christian hymns and gospel songs that have blessed the church and believers for many years, even after her death. Is it possible to live in a world of trouble without allowing the trouble to get on the inside of you? Well, she's an example, my friends, that it is possible. Another story is the story of Horatio G. Spafford, a wealthy Chicago businessman whose family planned a trip abroad during a time of stress in their lives, and because of last-minute business dealings, he had to stay behind while his wife and three daughters went ahead. And on the way across the Atlantic, their ship was inadvertently struck by another vessel, and it sank. And his three daughters perished in the icy waters of the North Atlantic. Only his wife survived. She telegraphed him back in Chicago, and she says, all are lost, I only remain. Mr. Spafford made arrangements to join his bereaved wife in uh, England and on the way across the Atlantic on his own vessel when they came to the approximate spot where their ship had gone down and his three daughters lay buried beneath the icy waters of the North Atlantic. The captain told him this is the approximate place. Mr. Spafford went out on deck and the thoughts that came to his mind, he began to write them down and he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And my beloved, may I say that that hymn is certainly an example that it's possible in a life filled with trouble to have peace in the heart. And we could list other examples. You may have heard of the story of Polycarp, the post-Johannine pastor who at 86 years of age was taken before the Roman proconsul and encouraged to recant his Christian confession. And this old man was told that if you will swear by the genius of Caesar, we will release you. But if you persist in your Christian 
confession, then you will be burned at the stake. Polycarp said, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no harm. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The king said, I have lions, I'll throw you to the lions. And Polycarp said, call them. The king said, all you have to do is say away with the atheists. He meant, I want you to spurn the Christians. You know, they called Christians atheists because they didn't worship the Roman pantheon. They didn't worship Zeus and Jupiter and Mercury and all of the gods and goddesses of the Roman Empire. You know, the fact is, they were not the atheists. They believed in the only true God, didn't they? But they said, say away with the atheists. And Polycarp looked at the crowd of spectators and waved his hand and said, away with the atheists. They said, we'll burn you at the stake. And Polycarp said, I insist that you not tie me to the stake, but let me stand there freely. And he was permitted to stand at the stake, unbound, as the flames were lit. Polycarp, my friends, perished as a martyr with peace in his heart. Maybe you've heard the story of Latimer and Ridley in Smithfield, England in 1555. Latimer turned to Ridley as they were being tied to be burned at the stake as Christian martyrs. And he said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. Perhaps if you want a biblical example, you need to be reminded this morning of the story of Paul and Silas in prison. As recorded in Acts chapter 16, verse 25, where it says, And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises to God, and the prisoners heard them. Those prisoners had heard many a fellow prisoner curse and claim to be incarcerated unjustly. They'd never heard anybody pray and sing praises to God with joy and peace in their hearts. My beloved, here are examples of people whose life is troubled, but their hearts are not. It is possible to live in a world of trouble without trouble getting in your heart, as these examples illustrate. And perhaps you say to me this morning, Brother Goins, how? What is the secret? And our text answers that question. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Faith in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ is the secret to a calm and poised spirit in the midst of a world of trouble. You believe in God, believe also in me. I think the apostle makes the same point in Romans 15, verse 13, when he says, Now the God of hope, and I've always loved that title for our God, the God of hope. My beloved, as long as there's a God on the throne, there's hope in this world. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Here's Paul's prayer for the church at Rome. I pray that this God would fill you with all joy and peace in believing. How do joy and peace come into our lives through believing? You see, what's the secret to a trouble-free heart? Believing in God and the Lord Jesus Christ. May he fill you with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. You know, it's a wonderful thing to see a Christian who has an optimistic outlook on the future. Now, perhaps you're here this morning and you say, Brother Mike, that's impossible. <laughs> I mean, are, are you an ostrich with your head in the sand? You know, are you a stranger to life in the real world? Are, aren't you familiar with the fact that this world is on fire? That we're living in a broken world and the chaos and cruelty and inhumanity is all around us. We hear of wars and rumors of wars. We hear of corruption. We hear of deception. We hear of subterfuge and lies and 
all sorts of shenanigans going on. I mean, there are struggles that the common man has that are just almost unbearable, it seems, at times. And there's an increasing anti-Christian sentiment, isn't there, from this ungodly and Christ-denying world in which we live. And you say to me, Brother Mike, it's impossible to have joy and peace, to have a trouble-free heart in a world like this. My friends, may I say, Jesus knew it was possible. And he tells his disciples how. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now I want to make a theological point at this juncture in my sermon. Notice the language here, the grammar here. You have two clauses, you believe in God, believe also in me. And the first is in the indicative mood and the second is in the imperative mood. I mean, the first one states a fact. It's an indicative or declarative statement. Jesus says, you believe in God. And then the second one is a command. He's talking to people who already believe in God. That's indicative. You believe in God. And then he gives them this command, believe also. You believe also in me. That's in the imperative mood. The theological point I want to draw from this is that only a child of God has the capacity to believe in God. And only a child of God, therefore, has the ability to have an untroubled and peaceful heart in the midst of the troubles of life. The unregenerate man, my friends, does not have faith. You know, don't you, that everybody doesn't have faith. Somebody says, all you've got to do is believe. Well, the fact is, the person who is without the ability to believe cannot believe. Because man is dead in trespasses and in sins by nature, he doesn't have the capacity to understand or to grasp the spiritual realm of the kingdom of God until he's born again. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 3, except you be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. But by the way, that's the very opposite of the way that many people believe today. Many people say, except you see the kingdom of God, you can't be born again. In other words, you've got to hear the gospel and you've got to see Jesus Christ and know what he's done for you on the cross. You've got to see the kingdom in order to be born again. Jesus said, except you be born again, you can't see the kingdom. The new birth is a necessary prerequisite, isn't it? To functioning in the spiritual realm. And faith is a gift of God in regeneration. You know, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Pray for us, brethren, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. Now, in language that you would have to have help to misunderstand, Paul says, everybody does not have faith. You say, well, then who has faith? Only those that have been given the Holy Spirit and the new birth. For faith, according to Galatians 5.22, is a fruit of the Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and you're born again, now you're capable of believing and exercising faith. And I believe that every person who's born again believes in God. That's a fact. As this indicative clause teaches, you believe in God. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 says, It is not only given to you to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. How do you believe on him? Because it's given to you. It is given to you to believe. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19 says that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead 
is necessary to enable a person to believe in God. He says, you believe according to that same mighty power which was wrought in Christ and raised him from the dead. You know, man's heart is so fallen that it takes a supernatural act of divine power for him to believe in God. But everyone who is born again does believe in God. He knows God in his heart. Now, he doesn't have an educated academic intellectual grasp of all of the facts of who God is, but he knows God, my friends, in his heart. John 6.45 says it like this, They shall all be taught of God. As it is written, Every man that hath heard and learned of the Father, that is, God's the origin or the source of this teaching, cometh unto me. Hebrews 8.11 says that you shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Did you know whether a person is poor or rich, male or female, young or old, every one of God's children, whatever their gender, socioeconomic status, political ideology, whatever their personality type, every one of them from the least to the greatest shall all be taught of God. That's a fact. God promises that he will quicken and bring every one of his children into a vital relationship with him and reveal himself to the heart. At some point between conception and death in the lives of each of his children, they shall all be taught of God so that no man can teach you to know the Lord. Only the Holy Spirit can teach a person to know God in this sense. But my beloved, after you've been brought to believe in God, Jesus says, now believe also in me. And I dare say this morning that the key to an untroubled heart is to cultivate the habit of maintaining focus on the Lord Jesus Christ instead of on ourselves or on the circumstances of life. He's saying the same thing in this verse that we read in Isaiah 26 verse 3 when it says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Now in specific terms, let's answer the question, how? We know the general answer, how can you have an untroubled heart in the midst of a troubled world? The general answer is faith in God and the Lord Jesus Christ. But in specific terms, I want you to notice five great truths in these three verses that will give us the resources necessary to keep our hearts from being troubled. And the first thing he would tell us is, brethren, let not your heart be troubled because you are headed home. I want you to take that personally this morning. Maybe your heart is troubled here this morning as you've come to Bethel Church. You have problems in your life. You're struggling with different adverse circumstances. You have pressures at work and you have family crises and personal issues. And perhaps you have some financial problems that are worrying you. That Your debt hangs like a dark cloud over your head. Or perhaps um, your body's breaking down or you're concerned about loved ones or there are is tension in your relationship. And you say, Brother Mike, uh, I have troubles all in my life and it's getting on the inside of me. I'm starting to worry about it. It's starting to affect me. And it's just preoccupying my mind and my blood pressure is going sky high and I'm having difficulties just coping with life. It happens, doesn't it? You say, I, I want to have a peaceful heart. I would love to have this calmness and poise of spirit that you're talking about, but I just don't know how. Again, the general answer is keep your focus on the Lord instead of on yourself or on your circumstance. That's the general answer. Have faith in God. 
Focus on him. Look unto Jesus. You know, it's when Peter kept his eyes on Jesus that he did the impossible. He walked on the water. But when he took his eyes off of Jesus and saw the winds boisterous around him, when he saw the circumstances around him, that's when he began to sink. And my beloved, when you keep your eyes on him, it will help you as well to keep a trouble-free heart. But in specific terms, I want you to remember these five things that Jesus tells us here. Let not your heart be troubled. You say, how? Believe in God and the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does that mean specifically? These five things. Number one, remember that you are headed home. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. Let not your heart be troubled. You say, well, okay, easier said than done. Tell me how. Remember, my friends, that the Father's house has many rooms. And you are a child of God. He's your Father in my Father's house. Now, Jesus Christ called God Father. And that's an intimate relational term that you will not find in the Old Testament. That is, the Old Testament patriarchs and prophets did not refer to God as Father. They thought that was far too intimate and personal. God was the creator. God was the redeemer. He was Jehovah God. He was transcendent and holy. And he still is all of that. But Jesus reveals another side to the character of God that is true, my beloved, for us because of divine grace. He taught his disciples to pray saying what? Our Father, which art in heaven. And those were revolutionary words in the world into which Jesus was born. Our Father. Now you may not have had a good father as far as this world is concerned. You may have had an absentee father or a passive father, or a runaway father, or an abusive father, or a father who was a poor example for what it means to be a father. But I'm telling you, dear friends, every one of God's children has a heavenly father who's perfect. And it helps us to remember that the God who made the universe is also the father of all that Jesus redeemed on the cross. We can come to him and refer to him and think of him as our father. And the father has a house. In the father's house. Now what is the father's house? It's the old home place. Right? You know, I was raised in a modest ranch style house in Friona, Texas. We moved into that house in 1970. I was uh, eight years of age. We had rented a house prior to that time on Pierce Street, and we moved into this new construction, a three-bedroom, two-bath house when I was eight years of age. I, I grew up in my parents' house, the father's house. And every once in a while, um, I have the opportunity to go back and to visit mom and dad, and sure enough, there's my old room. And there's the uh, hallway where my brothers and I used to play Nerf basketball. There's the uh, living room floor where we used to spread out our vinyl football field with our plastic football men, you know, set them up and play each other in football and get mad at each other every time. I mean, we would have knockdown, drag out fights because my brothers always cheated, by the way. But um, anyway, there's the box where I kept my baseball cards. Had a Johnny Bench rookie card had a Nolan Ryan card. I had uh, cards for uh, Hank Aaron and all of these great ball players back in the day. And going back, it's like uh, I never left in many respects. It's home. 
you know, in many respects, it's home. That's what I hope my children will grow up and think of my house to be. They'll think of it as the old home place. And I know that every young person grows up and moves away from home and forms his or her own family. And you get your own place. And that's the way it's supposed to be. And that becomes home to you. In fact, I still like to visit. But when I really think of home, I think of where I live with my wife and children today. You know, that's my home now. But I still have fond sentimental feelings about the Father's house. I'm telling you what heaven is, dear friends. Heaven is home. My beloved, there are many mansions in the Father's house. This isn't a cramped, tiny house. (laughs) This is, my beloved, a palatial estate. Many mansions. And literally, that means many rooms. But by the way, the fact that he uses the word mansions indicates that these rooms are not six by nine. You know, with concrete floors and uh, a single bed. These are palatial rooms. These are better than the presidential suite at a five-star hotel. In my father's house are many mansions. And the idea is that your father's the king of the universe, right? And he lives in a palace. Every one of his children receives the royal treatment when they go to the father's house. Jesus says, I want you to remember, if you want to keep a trouble-free heart, that you're headed for home. And home, my friends, is a place where you will be treated royally. When you get home, there won't be infighting and family squabbles and tensions and jealousies, and there won't be any of that. When you get home, I'm telling you, dear friends, that you will receive first-class treatment. In fact, you will have more than heart could wish. And you will be home, finally. Do you know what happens when we bid farewell to a loved one here? It's so sad for us. You say, oh, we've lost them. Well, we may have lost them. Technically, we haven't. You know, something that's lost, we don't know where it is. And technically, my beloved, we haven't lost our loved ones who've gone on. We know where they are, don't we? Our understanding is that because of divine grace, as soon as the eyes of the body close in death, the eyes of the soul at that very instant awake in the presence of the Lord to behold Christ in all of his glory. We know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And interestingly, that word present in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 means at home. One of the most lovely metaphors for heaven in the Bible is this idea that heaven is home. Heaven is home. Why would you be afraid to go there? If it's home, my friends, are you ever afraid to go home? Be it ever so humble, there's no place like home, right? And I'm so glad to be at home. Somebody says, you have to stay at home. Well, that's a place I like to be. (laughs) I like to be home as long as I'm with those that I love and, you know, it's familiar and and I feel comfortable and confident and safe there. Home is a wonderful word. One of the most precious words in the English language. Jesus says to keep your heart trouble-free, remember that you're headed home. Heaven is the Father's house, and there are many mansions there. Secondly, the key to a trouble-free heart in the midst of a troubled world, not only remember that you're headed home, but remember that you have a sufficient guidebook to get you there. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many mansions. Notice the next expression. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now, what does he mean by that? He means that I've given you the information that you need, and if you needed to know anything else, 
I would not have withheld that from you. That is, what I've told you is sufficient and adequate. I want to remind you today, dear friends, we have a sufficient guidebook to make it through this world until we get home. Everything you need to know about life and godliness has been given to you and to me in this book. Somebody says we need to supplement the Bible with uh, church tradition. Or we need to supplement the Bible with dreams and revelations or with man's wisdom. I'm telling you, dear friends, that this book is a thorough furniture unto every good work. Didn't Paul say that in 2 Timothy 3.16? All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto every good work. If you had a house that's thoroughly furnished, you wouldn't need to buy anything else to put in there. It's already furnished. And I'm telling you, this book is a thorough furnisher to every good work. My friends, may I say this book is crucial to getting you home. Now, we're headed toward the Father's house. And you say, well, it's not the destination that worries me. It's how do I get there? You follow this guidebook. Because Jesus says, if you needed to know anything else, I would have told you. Jesus practiced glasnost before glasnost was cool. You know what glasnost is? You remember in South Africa, it's openness, transparency. He said, I've been open and transparent. Jesus did not withhold information. There were no closet doctrines that only the initiates or the elite could understand. Jesus says, I've, I've revealed openly and completely everything that you need. And you know, the problem that most of us have is that we don't spend enough time in this book. May I say, my beloved, that you and I both need to read this book every day of our lives. Not just books about this book. It's not enough just to read good religious books or Christian literature. Now, I've tried to write a few volumes, a few titles about biblical subjects and themes. But I'll tell you, dear friends, nothing substitutes for time actually spent in the pages of God's Word every day. And I'm not only talking about preachers, I'm talking about people too. If you want to be wise, you want to keep your thinking straight, you want to keep your heart right, spend time in the Word of God. I was reading the other morning from Second Chronicles chapters 22 and 23 and 24, and I commented to Sister Lori after I'd finished that it's amazing how just a little bit of Bible reading puts the whole world in focus. I mean, in those chapters, he's talking about political upheaval in the Jewish culture. That is, this person was the king and he died and he was a, a, a wicked king and he died and his mother took over. Her name was Athaliah, by the way. And she was a wicked woman and she slew all of her rivals. You know, we hear about these political people who may have been involved in, in uh, trying to take down their rivals. And you, we say, it's just mind-boggling. Well, History repeats itself. And understanding the biblical narrative puts a lot of the world in focus. She slew all of her potential rivals, but one of her relatives hid away a little child. And she missed him in slaying all of her rivals. And they hid this child in the house of God until he was eight years of age. And at the age of eight, the priest, now somebody says you shouldn't mix religion and politics. Well, here's the priest that gets the other priests to take up arms. Here are a bunch of preachers with shotguns. <laughs> and they take up arms to protect this little eight-year-old boy 
at his coming out party. It's the inauguration day, and the priest installs the eight-year-old as the king, and Athaliah, the woman, the wicked woman, comes out, and she says, treason, treason. But they say, don't slay her in the house of God, boys. Take her outside and kill her. And you want to talk about drama? You want to talk about interesting reading? You want to talk about how that the world that we're living in, my friends, makes much more sense when we view it through the grid of what is written in Holy Scripture? And then you read about these godly kings who saw the, the dilapidated condition of the house of God and the deplorable state of God's people, how that religion had sunk to such a low ebb and people were becoming increasingly secularized. And these men would be moved by the Holy Spirit to reform the situation. They would start repairing God's house and trying to get people back to church, back to serving God again, and they would experience a time of revival. And these cycles would go over and over again. My beloved, it, just a little bit of Bible reading will clear up a lot of confusion in our lives in this world. I'm saying Jesus Christ has prepared a home for us, the Father's house, and you have a sufficient guidebook to get you there. If it were not so, he would have told you. Real quickly, the third key to keeping an untroubled heart in the midst of a troubled world is to remember that Jesus Christ has already prepared your place there. You don't have to build the Father's house. You're not responsible, my friends, for building your heavenly home. You're not swinging the hammer and putting up the two-befores and, you know, pouring the concrete and nothing that you or I can do will prepare that place. You know how it's prepared? God the Father prepared it in His mind and purpose before the world began, and Jesus went to the cross to prepare a place for you. Your place is already prepared there. In the Father's house are many mansions. How did He prepare that place? By doing for you what you couldn't do for yourself. He died in your room instead. He shed His precious blood. Your sins have been forgiven. You have a title deed to glory land. Now my friends, if you've ever had a clear title to maybe a piece of property or a house. You know, that's a good feeling, isn't it? There are no liens on it. You know, you get that piece of paper in the mail that says, uh, paid in full, here's your clear title. It's yours. And you can list it on your balance sheet as one of your assets, right? Because you have a clear title. I'm telling you today, you have a clear title to glory. The hymn writer said it like this, when I can read my title clear, to mansions in the sky. I'll bid farewell, I'll bid farewell to every fear and wipe my weeping eyes. Yes, my beloved, can you read your title clear today? You have a clear title to heaven? Yes, you do, because Jesus has prepared a place for you. It's yours. He paid for it. He didn't say, now I'll pay half of it if you'll pay half. Your home in heaven is not based on a compromise like that. You have a clear title because Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. My beloved, you have a clear title, and you want to read your title clear, then hear the gospel preached. Because it tells you about the finished work of Jesus Christ, right? And that'll keep your heart from being troubled. You say, Brother Mike, what you're saying is if I want to keep a trouble-free heart down here, I just need to keep my eyes on heaven. That's precisely what I'm saying. You see, the problem with the modern Christian is he no longer lives for heaven. He's become so enamored with this world that he's forgotten that there's a better world than this. I love these old Baptists. You know, it's not uncommon in an old Baptist song service to hear a number of songs selected 
that have their theme as heaven and immortal glory. You know, God's people love to sing about heaven. And you say, well, why are we singing so much about heaven? I'm interested not in the sweet by and by, but in the nasty here and now. Well, I'll tell you why we're singing about the sweet by and by, because it makes the now and now, the here and now, less nasty. It makes it easier to bear, doesn't it? God intended for his people to live by faith, not by sight, to keep your eyes on the prize, to look to Jesus, to remember the city toward which you travel. Abraham journeyed through this world looking for a city which hath foundations, a permanent city, whose builder and maker is God. And my beloved, that's what it means to live by faith for you and me in this world. So if you want a trouble-free heart, remember you're headed home. You have a sufficient guidebook to get you there. Christ has already prepared your place. And remember that Jesus Christ is coming again, for he goes on to say, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Remember the second coming, my beloved, the Redeemer's glorious return. Jesus said it like this, when all these troubles begin to happen, then lift up your heads and look up, for your redemption is drawing nigh. My beloved, keep your eyes on the eastern sky, because one day he will split the skies with the shout of the archangel and the voice of the trump of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ will come riding that great white horse with the armies of heaven in his train. And he's coming to make war upon every enemy. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. He will judge every foe. He will trample out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored and tread under his feet the devil and all of his angels, casting them to the lake of fire and ransom the many captives that belong to him. And he will take them home and present them to the Father where they will be with him safe at last forever. My beloved, Jesus Christ is coming again. The brightest star on the Christian horizon is the Redeemer's glorious return. Never forget it. I love to preach about the second coming of Christ. We talked about it last week briefly in that verse in Hebrews 9, 28, where he says, Unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. He's not coming this time like he did the first time, meek and lowly, bearing our sins. He's already done that, and he's put away those sins. He's coming the second time as a glorious, conquering hero king. He's coming, my friends, without sin, unto salvation. And every child of grace will be gathered together, never to part again. There will be no more goodbyes, no more sad goodbyes, no more partings over there. Jesus is coming again. Never forget it. It'll keep you from having a troubled heart. And finally, he says, remember, fifthly, that you will be together with your Savior forever and ever. He says that where I am, there you may be also. Now, my beloved, can you imagine being in the presence of Jesus forever? You know, I, I know some people at a distance. I know about some people that I never hope to meet in this world. And then I've been a few places where I've seen someone that was of note, some notable, visible, you know, public person, and I've seen them from a distance, maybe even shaken hands with one or two of them, or had an opportunity to maybe you know, get a little bit close to them and take a picture. But yet the fact is that most of us live, you know, separate and apart from the visible people of our world. I'm telling you, dear friends, to think of being in the very presence of Jesus. And he won't be so busy that he won't have time for you. I'm talking about you in heaven. And you won't have to look at him from a distance, you know, a half mile away and say, I think that's Jesus up there on the stage. 
Do you have any binoculars so I can see them better? I'm telling you, your fellowship will be very personal. And mine will too. You say, well, how will he have time for all of us? I think he'll be too busy. No, my friends, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. We can't grasp it all. We can't figure it all out, is what I'm saying. But I'm telling you, dear friends, you will be in his very immediate presence and have his personal face-to-face unmitigated fellowship forever and ever. You will. Where I am, there you may be also. Just as surely as the disciples enjoyed fellowshipping with him at the Last Supper, they had his very communion and presence with them, so you and I will have that with us in heaven, so that where he is, we will be also. He said it like this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What will heaven be like? Well, we know this much. We know that we will see him in reality, not by faith. We'll see him face to face. And I can't even begin to imagine how glorious that will be. Some years ago, I was passing through a very difficult season in my life, a time of great heartache and change. And a friend gave me this quote by Francis de Sales, who lived in 1567 to 1622. De Sales had written these words to a dear friend who was also facing radical changes in his circumstances. And as I passed through this dark valley in my life, I read these words over and over, almost on a daily basis for a while, and they brought me great comfort. And I think it's consistent with what the message has been this morning. DeSales wrote this, Do not look forward in fear to the changes of life. Rather, look to them with full hope that as they arise, God, whose very own you are, will deliver you out of them. He has kept you hitherto, and he will lead you safely through all things. And when you cannot stand, God will bear you in his arms. Do not fear what may happen tomorrow. The same everlasting Father who cares for you today will take care of you tomorrow and every day. Either he will shield you from suffering, or he will give you unfailing strength to bear it. Be at peace then. And put aside all anxious thoughts and imaginations. My friends, that's relevant biblical counsel. At some point in your life and in mine, each one of us will need those words. Each one of us will need our Savior's comforting, tender expression. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Put your faith also in the Lord Jesus Christ today and lean steadily upon him, for he will never let you go. Amen.